Will you guys pray with me? Father, now for those of us who understand what we were just singing, oh, it moves us. Because we know that nothing the enemy throws at us can stick anymore. Oh, that you rose from the grave, rendering all of Satan's tactics and efforts powerless compared to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us today how to properly understand the doctrine of resurrection so that it invades every part of our lives. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. May we live out of a place that understands how you secured the victory right there. But you didn't just win it. You passed it on to us. So teach us this morning from your scriptures. As relevant today as the day they were written. What it means to live life in victory. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Happy Easter. Hey, if you're new around here, my name's Stephen. I'm the pastor. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning at our Easter service. This morning, what I want to do is talk about the impact of properly understanding the resurrection on every aspect and part of your life. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's writings this morning as he reflects on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, he lays out a doctrine of resurrection. And then in Philippians chapter 3, he offers a personal reflection on the resurrection. And so in order to do this this morning, we're going to understand the resurrection in three ways. I want to understand the resurrection historically. What does it historically mean? I want to understand the resurrection personally. Uh, what does it personally mean for, for me and for you? And then I want us to understand or to gaze at the resurrection futuristically. What does the doctrine or a proper doctrine of the resurrection still leave out there for us? Of course, at the beginning of service this morning and at our Good Friday service on Friday night, we dealt with, I don't mean that in a negative way, the, the cross and the implications of it. The, the death that Jesus had to die so that you and I might experience our salvation. But today, we don't dwell on the death. We live out of the resurrection. And so we're going to focus this morning in on that. Again, starting in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're just going to walk through a couple of scriptures this morning. And I hope that all of us will understand then. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a famous chapter, and it really is outside of the actual resurrection accounts in the gospel, uh, the most helpful chapter in understanding the doctrine of resurrection. Paul takes time in it to mention that anyone or any teaching that nullifies the, the literal historical resurrection nullifies the gospel. And so it is very possible this morning that there are those of us who have not yet come to terms with an actual historical resurrection. That it is real, that it is actual, that it did occur. 
And so Paul actually spends the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and it's not just here, it's many other places, building an historical argument for a literal, actual resurrection. He said, I saw him. James saw him, Peter saw him, the other apostles saw him. And if you don't believe them because you think we've just bought into something, 500 other people saw him. This is written decades after. Of course, around this time and to this day, people still come up with uh, alternate theories on what happened with Jesus and, and the resurrection and all of that. Historically, we have way more evidence for actually believing in a resurrection due to people's actions, due to um, texts that are written that have been validated on that the resurrection is real than that it was fabricated. And even though there is an intellectual aim on all of this, at some point it has to move beyond that. Even historically, though, Paul gives three reasons why Christians must believe in the historical resurrection. I want to give you those three points, and then I want to build on those three points as we continue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul in verse 17 gives us the first reason why as Christians we must believe in the historical resurrection. He says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There may have been at that time a sect of Christianity that was saying, well, is the resurrection real? I mean, again, this is decades after did that really happen the, the way that, that it is said and, and that we understand? And he's going to, Paul is saying, absolutely. He's saying, if you don't understand in the actual, literal resurrection, then you're still in your sin. It was Christ rising out of that grave that rendered sin powerless. Yes, he paid for the sin on the cross. That was the redemption payment that moment. But it was him rising out of that grave, stepping out of it, saying, I'm back, that actually destroyed sin's power. So a historical, actual belief in the resurrection reminds us that now sin has indeed lost its power. You go down a few more verses. Paul's building his doctrinal case for a resurrection. In verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's he saying there? He's saying if, if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, then our belief system just centered around his death and a good life and a sacrificial moment on the cross is kind of pathetic. But yeah, sure, it's a, it's a beautiful story of sacrificial love. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then what separates him from any other great act of sacrifice and love? Yes, he was perfect, and so there's a, certainly an element of that, but, but Paul says, we're to be most pitied. Why? Because we have placed our hope in something that you could argue isn't that much different than something else. And Paul is saying, the resurrection is essential to this story. The resurrection is essential. He's saying, in that in this now, we have a hope that transcends the circumstances of this life. Why? Because the, the, the death of Christ on the cross was, you 
could easily argue, the lowest moments in, in human history, and certainly the most unfair moment in human history, right? And, and no one argues about the historicity of Christ actually dying on a cross, but in the moment that Christ died on the cross, right, all of the sin of the world fell on him, and it appeared to be the deepest, worst, darkest moment ever. But as the world was saying, or the disciples were saying, no, 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 God was saying, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then Christ dies, and then he rises from the grave. And Paul is saying, if we can believe that Christ rose from that death, we now have a hope that transcends any circumstance because that circumstance appeared absolutely hopeless. And if Christ can do something in that, he can do something in anything. Third thing Paul says in verse 22 and 23. He says, for as in Adam all die. And why do all die in Adam? This is known as total depravity or our sinful nature that we are born into sin. We don't learn sin later. We just get better at it. Watch a toddler. They're growing in their sinful nature. We get, we get better at sin as we get older, but we, we, we don't start sin or we, we don't learn. Like we're born into sin. We're born into Adam, our first father's death. And because we're born into Adam's sin, we are destined to life apart from God uh, on this earth. It's separation from God after, after death on this earth. It's hell. And we're, we're, we're headed there apart from something changing. We're, we're in Adam's death. All of us are until something changes. Now, what Paul is arguing here is that for as in Adam all die, all people are placed into Adam's death, you and me included. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. All can now be made alive because of Christ. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, in other words, he rose from the dead first, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I'll explain some of that later. What Paul is in essence saying here is this. Historical understanding of the resurrection teaches us the complete opposite of everything else that the world would teach us. And that is this, that there is victory even over death. Even over death. I mean, this sentence has worked itself into our common vernacular, right? End of a basketball game, somebody hits a three, it puts them up by a lot of points, and we say what? That was the death sentence, or that was the death blow, right? Like, because we know that when we say death, what we mean is it's fully, completely, 100%, entirely, there's no wiggle room, it's dead. And an historical understanding of the resurrection teaches us that God actually has victory even over that. He has victory even over death. Three truths that Paul says you have to understand these. Because he rose from the grave, sin has lost its power. Because he rose from the grave, there is hope in every circumstance. Because he rose from the grave, there is victory even over death historical understanding of this is essential to understanding Christianity and the core doctrine of it. But at some point in time, an historical or an intellectual understanding of this doctrine must move from there to the personal. And in Philippians chapter 3, it's exactly what Paul does. 
He takes this historical, um, intellectual pursuit of the, uh, of the doctrine of resurrection, and he gives a personal reflection on how the resurrection has affected him. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never made this shift. You're okay with saying that you think Christ might have risen from the dead. And you're like, I certainly see the effects of his life, you know, on all of the world for 2,000 years. Like, maybe he did. Maybe you like the idea of a power that can change. You, you like the idea of an afterlife. You like the idea of a hope that transcends the circumstances that you might find yourself in. And maybe you have found yourself in some circumstances and you needed that hope. And so it was nice to connect back to something bigger. But at some point for every person, we must make the transition that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter three. And in Philippians chapter three, Paul begins to offer a personal reflection on how the resurrection has changed him. As you read the entirety of Paul's epistles, you see that Paul's entire life, it's not an overstatement, Paul's entire life was built on a proper understanding of resurrection. That the reason Paul was able to live the way that he lived and do the things that he did is because he had a proper understanding of resurrection. Let's hop over to Philippians chapter 3. And here Paul offers his reflection. I'm going to start with verse 8 says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now I ask, what would compel a human being to say, for that guy's sake, I now look at everything as rubbish. For the, for the sake of a dead hero, if he had not risen, I, I consider everything to be rubbish. Now, the reason Paul could say that he looks at everything in life and counts it as rubbish is because he was living under the doctrine of the resurrection. All of discipleship, all of spiritual growth is to be fueled by a proper understanding of resurrection. Paul then goes into how the, these, these three uh, um, traits or ideas that I presented earlier um, now become personal. In verse 9, he says, uh, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Where does all of this start with? Paul says, I have gained a new righteousness. Not my own righteousness. I have been given Christ's righteousness. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, I didn't get into it, uh, but Paul had talked about how he had made every effort to become righteous. In fact, part of the story of humanity is, is humans trying to make their own effort to be good enough. But Paul says, what I realized is that I needed a righteousness that was not my own. And then he goes on to say where he found that righteousness and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That statement that comes from the law is another way of saying that comes from you and I's own effort. 
Some of us, out of an historical understanding of the resurrection, what we have done is we've said, okay, I understand the the historicity or, or the literalism of the resurrection, and now because of that, what I'm going to do is try to live perfectly. And how's that going for you? I mean, it's tax season. How's that going for you? Boo, right. We can't. I mean, we can't live perfectly. But Paul says, I have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. What he's saying is, I was given a new righteousness, and it's Christ's righteousness. That as Christ was on the cross, that an exchange happened, All of my sin and shame, all of your sin and shame was in that moment on the cross. It's why he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, all of his sin and all of your sin and shame was placed on him and taken off of you so that his righteousness could be placed on you, activated through faith. Not your best efforts, not your best efforts, but simply by faith. In this way, then, what Paul is saying is not just has um, sin lost its cosmic power over the world. It's not just that sin's power has been kind of lifted over the world. What Paul is saying is, no, sin has lost its power in me. And the move, then, from an historical understanding to a personal one is when you come to the conclusion, you say, look what's happened. Sin has lost its power in me. This is how you know that that resurrection understanding has begun to take root in your life. Paul says it this way at one point. He said, you used to be like this, but then you, in faith, stepped into Christ, and now you're something different. Understanding resurrection in this way then means that there is nothing in me that is not of God that has to remain. It can all be changed. It can all be taken away. I can believe that because Christ rose from the grave, that sin can lose its power over me. That sin and the stronghold that it has on you. How do I know it has a stronghold on you? Because of how you still act. Because of how you still think. Because of the despair. Because of the way you've searched for for something and haven't been able to find it and still live under the consequences of it. Because of how you respond. Because of how you live. And this resurrection doctrine teaches us that sin, sin, that thing inside of us that makes us strive after that which is not of God can die and lose its power. And then when it does, what happens? Paul says in verse 12, not that have I that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There, by the way, Paul is giving us the motivation of this. He's saying all of the motivation of this new life that I'm living, this new resurrection life that I'm living, all of the motivation is this, that Christ made me his own. That on the cross, when when it should have been me, when, when I should have been the one bearing the weight of my own sin and facing the wrath of God, instead of me having to bear it and face it, Jesus stepped into my place and took it on himself. 
And now, now because he has, because Christ has made me his own, Paul says this. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Paul says, here's how I live out this resurrection life. Forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul says this understanding of the resurrection is even so powerful that it can lift my constant need to dwell back on that or on how I have failed or fallen. He said this resurrection is so powerful that it, it can even take away that feeling of knowing, but I haven't been perfect. I haven't lived up to it. I did do that thing. God couldn't love me. Why? Because Christ claimed us as his own, not when we were good, not when we uh, deserved it, but when we were still in our sin. He died for us and he claimed us even though we weren't cleaned up yet. We don't have to clean ourselves up to be embraced by him. And so Paul says, now because of that, I can even forget it. And I know some of you, you live in this. I mean, to this day, you still go back to that thing you did, that thing you said, and it haunts you. You still live under the weight of it. And Paul is saying, I now have a hope in every circumstance because of Christ's resurrection. I have a hope even in the circumstances of my past. And Paul killed Christians. Sought them out. Most of us probably haven't rebelled against Christianity like to that extreme. And that guy, Paul, can say, I can even have a hope knowing that because of this idea of resurrection. I don't have to be defined by that anymore. But here's what's interesting. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is this, that, that as we step into Christ and we make this resurrection our own, that sin begins to lose its power over us and we begin to move down in a life that is reflecting Christ and we're able to forget the guilt and the shame of our past and we're pressing on to what God has called us to go after. And as we're doing that, something interesting begins to happen. Here's, here's what happens. We don't do this and, and get to a, a place where we look back at our past and in arrogance or pride, Look at people and say, no, you can't define me like that, or, or, or no, you can't, you can't hold that over me. You know what happens as we start following Christ? Often we actually go back to that place in the past, and in humility, we seek forgiveness. We make amends or restoration for where we went wrong. We, we, we seek to see it fixed or restored. In the Bible, Zacchaeus was a great example of this. Zacchaeus, like, he, he experienced Jesus. He was just this dude who was in a tree one day. Jesus met him. Longer story. But he meets Jesus, and he forgets. He could have just forgotten what lied in his past, but instead, what did he do? He went back, and he was like, hey, I stole money from you. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Let me fix what I broke. That can come out of this understanding of resurrection. Why? Because we want to go fix the things that don't reflect the way God would want us to live. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Those of us who are actually mature in Christ, the way we think is, uh, I forget what lies behind me. I'm not defined by it anymore, but I still want to restore what I broke if I can. 
Second thing then, right there, is that it gives us hope in every circumstance. The third thing that Paul says is in verse 10. He says this, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He's saying the power of the resurrection fuels all of this living. I like to think there in that moment when Paul is saying that, he's like, I want to know the power of his resurrection. It's helpful for me, and maybe it was helpful for Paul in that moment to just like stop. And Paul wasn't there when Christ rose from the grave, but, but maybe in that moment, it's like easy to, to, to try to understand the power of his resurrection. Like, what would it have been like? Like, like if you could have just stood there and watched. I mean, there wasn't an, uh, an earthly person there that watched this, but when the, when, the, when the stone rolled away and Jesus stepped out, was like, hey guys, I'm back. There wasn't anyone to talk to in that moment. But had he said that, like, like a dead thing just came to life. Like almost every movie that you watch, it takes the, the hero of the story and brings them to the brink of death. Why? So that there can be this moment where the music begins to swell and the thing that is almost dead comes back to life. But in the movies, they don't actually kill the thing because then no one would believe in the story. So not even the movie can steal the full story because it seems unbelievable. But in Christ, he was actually dead. And then he came back to life. And Paul's like, whatever power that could do that... I want to know it. Not to show I want to know it. He says, I want to live by it. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if that kind of death can lead to that kind of power, then I'll die that kind of death if it results in that kind of power. Because sometimes we'll say, yeah, I want that power. Oh, I do want to live by that resurrection power. You know how you get it? You die the death that he died. You know what the death he died was? In that moment, right, sin fell upon him. What's it saying to us? It's saying that if we want to walk in that kind of power, then sin has equally got to die in us. And sin's got to be stripped away from us. And it leads us to a life of holiness. Life that says, I don't want to do anything that's a part from, from what God would want. And so then it begins to strip away the sin. And we already know that sin lost its power, so this is possible. You see what this, this resurrection life begins to look like? Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to understand the fullness of this resurrection in, in life. I think what Paul is saying here is that when we begin to understand the power of the resurrection, that there's a shift that happens in our mind. <coughs> and it's a shift that is essential for the Christian to make. And it says that death is not the end. That death is not the end. I mean, almost all of our lives, if we like play them back, 
And we like start here and we look at the destination. Like, like it seems so many of our decisions are made and we make them and we live this way and we spend this way and we act this way and we, we, we spend our time like this and we, we talk like this and we do this thing and we mourn like this and we do all of these things. And you say, well, why? Well, because death is the end. And so I act that way, and I live that way, and I do that way, and I, and I think that way, and all of these things. Why? Well, because death is the end. And what Paul is saying here is rewind all of that. Okay. I don't want to trip in front of y'all. He says, hold on. What if there's a different way to live? What if you lived and you realized that the destination at the end is that death is not the end? What if you live that, then you could walk and live and spend and do and think and act and all of this, and you realize death's not the end. There's actually something beyond it. That would then change all of the living that you do. And you know what it would do? You know what all three of these things do? When sin has lost its power, it makes you holy. When you have a hope in every circumstance, it sets you free. When you all of a sudden realize that death is not the end, it makes you brave or crazy. Because then Paul's here all of a sudden, and he's like, all right, sin's lost its power, so whatever the enemy throws at me, I can brush that off. I don't have to give in to the temptation and run backwards. And so now he's starting to walk down this life. And now I have a hope in every circumstance. And so when I get into life and it seems dire and it seems like it's the worst and it seems like I should just quit and I'm wondering, God, where are you? And how come you're not here to help me? I can have a hope in every circumstance because he rose from the grave. And so I'm just going to keep walking. And God, or the enemy, or the world, or just life in its natural state is going to throw circumstances at you, but hope's the only thing that's going to come out. And so you're just going to keep pressing on. And then, at some point in time, you're going to realize, not only can I have hope in every circumstance, not only has sin lost its power and am I free from that, but now, whoo, the worst the world can do is kill you. That's it. That's it. Now, when you think death is the end. Oh, it'll crush you. It'll make you afraid. Peter says it even makes you mourn differently. You'll do everything else differently. Oh. But if you're here and you realize death isn't the end and you realize the worst thing they can do is kill me. Oh, how brave you can then live. How free you can then live. That's the power of his resurrection. Free. You have hope. Death is not me. Can you? I don't know what that was. Can, okay. Can we just look at the alternative for a second? Like in this one, you're not free. You're constantly tied to a chain that just keeps bringing you back. And you've walked down the path 
a hundred times and it's never led where you wanted it to lead. When you're not in this one, you get in the midst of these dire circumstances and you're like, I'm hopeless. Like, what could possibly make this better? And so you throw in the towel. Maybe that's what you've done over the last year. When you're not in this and when you're afraid of death, then every little thing terrifies you. What if I don't live up to my potential? What if I don't get everything done before it's over? What if the sickness takes the person I love? What, what if, what if, what if? And it informs everything. And we feel the weight of it. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. Sin's gone. It's lost its power. You can have hope no matter how bad it is. Death isn't the end. Live like that. And then he doesn't even stop there. He says, let me help you understand it futuristically. This isn't even the best part, Paul says. That's pretty good, but this is better. He says, let me help you understand how this proper understanding of doctrine, and by the way, maybe we've just forgotten how essential the resurrection is and that one of Satan's greatest tactics is to get us so hyper-focused on every other part of our faith that we forget the importance, the necessity, the visibility of the resurrection. Like, we, like Paul built his whole life off of this doctrine. But Paul says, let me paint a picture of a future for you. This is the picture of the future. I'm not a prophet. I just know how to read. And this, Paul says, this is what will happen. Friends, this is what will happen. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. He says, then comes the end. Then comes the end. And the end ought to be terrifying for anyone who has not yet believed in the resurrection. But he says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. What's he saying? He says, in the end will come a day when sin will have fully lost its power and not a person or the earth itself will live under the curse of sin in any way whatsoever anymore. He's saying a day is coming and, 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 and almost like, like, a, like a fog being lifted. The curse will be lifted. All of the, 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 the weight, remember, like there are times in your life when, when you're like carrying something and then all of a sudden it just feels like it's kind of lifted and you're like, oh, that feels better and I didn't even know I was carrying it. Like, like all of the earth in a second is going to go, whoa, what just happened? All of the darkness is faded. So that will happen in the future. Next thing he says that'll happen in the future is in verse 25. He says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That every enemy, every single enemy that God has or that is opposed to God, he's going to put them all under his feet. Like, I feel like he's just going to like stomp them off like he's playing a big game of whack-a-mole. One's going to pop up. See ya! 
God's going to be like, 10 points, give me a ticket. Every enemy. That means everything we look out and say, that's wrong, that's broken. God's showing, saying it is wrong and it is broken and I'm going to fix it. And they're all going to die. And guess what? It happens in that moment after God defeats all of those enemies. You know what the last thing that is that's going to disappear? Death in a second, but before that. Something else is going to disappear in that moment. You know what it is? Hope. Hope's going to disappear in that second. You know why? Because hope is the conviction of a preferred future. And in that second... You won't need hope anymore. You won't need hope. Hope will disappear. Why? Because everything the heart has longed for and desired will be given in that moment. Hope won't be necessary anymore. Oh, I look forward to that day. Third thing. Third thing then. Paul says, helps us understand the resurrection because this will happen in the end. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But the way that God is going to destroy death is different than the way he's going to destroy all of the other things. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. I mean, this verse right here, friends. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the way he's going to destroy this one is not just by like killing death. That's not how he destroys death. The way that he destroys death is by bringing everything else back to life. That's how he destroys death. And so he doesn't like, there's not like a, like a, like a death thing that he's like, all right, death, you're, no. What happens is that everything that is dead starts coming back to life. And you know what that includes? Me and you. That means there's going to be a day in the future where like Christ, right? Like, 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 the, like the grave and the tombstone is going to be rolled away. And I'm going to come back out and be like, I'm back, y'all. And so are you if you're in Christ. Because death is not the end. And because death's not the end, all those who are in Christ, they're going to be brought back to life. And everything that was broken or lost or wrong or restored will be restored, will be made right again in that moment. And all of the things that you thought were so compelling down this path that brought you down it over and over and over and over again, you're going to forget about all of them. And you're going to just walk down this path and everything good is going to be brought back. And all that was lost will be given and restored. He will reign until he has killed even death by bringing everything back to life. This, Paul says, is how we're supposed to live. Understanding this. So since God has power over you right now, doesn't have to. So you've lost hope. You don't need to. So you felt the sting of death. Let the resurrection 
even give you peace in that. Everything in Christ will be brought back to life. Today, I want to close with two prayers. First, for those who have never made the resurrection their own, that today you would. Secondly, for all of us to know how to better live under the doctrine of resurrection and to know the power of it in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray first for those who have never made the shift, never believed it historically to even believe it personally, or have just believed it historically and it has never become personal. If that's you this morning, I want you to pray this in the quietness of your heart. God, I now believe the story I believe the story of the death of Christ and the exchange that was made, my sin for his righteousness. And I believe in the resurrection as the power over that and the new eternal life granted. Now, you may not understand everything you just committed to, but don't worry, I'm here every week to help you. And the church exists to help you grow up in this newfound belief. And Father, for the rest of us, may we be mature, as Paul said in Philippians, living a life where sin has lost its power, where we have hope in every circumstance, and we live knowing that not even death is the end. Deepen this in us. In Jesus' name name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.